Um, just like is the market going up or down for the last couple of years, the inflation deflation debate has gone on. And um, when I went to prepare this uh, today, I went back to this um, and I realized I didn't have to change the slides much, which was great because not a lot's changed in terms of the debate, depending on which side you're on, other than um, because of all the uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus that's gone into the system, there is a higher chance of, uh, of inflation. We are starting to see a slight move up in it. The question is going to be how far does it go? And uh, let's just go through. And the case for inflation, again, was really based on the reopening, which has been inconsistent and I think sporadic because of the waves. Um, but you are getting a lot of uh, pent-up demand. Um, and really, what's different about the pent-up demand now is it's coming from three sources. Governments, businesses, and consumers will all be spending heavily. Um, and that actually can push up and create some inflationary pressures. We'll talk a little bit later on why we think it could have the opposite effect. Reshoring and uh, resilience of supply chains was another one of the big themes that people felt was going to create uh, more inflation. Reshoring because we were going to be producing in the U.S., which would create we had a cost basis uh, imbalance uh, versus labor costs versus countries like China and Vietnam. That gap has been closed somewhat because of technology, uh, but greater resilience of supply chains is going to be more important, and that could increase the cost as well. Money supply is up quite a bit, 27% um, year over year, $500 billion in the U.S. in the last two years. I'm sorry, in the last two months. Um, so that's another one. And these uh, disruptions from COVID have created shortages we're seeing it in the semiconductor area. You're seeing it in, in a lot of areas, um, and that is putting upward pressure. And just to give you a sense, you know, personal savings rates went up quite a bit, and the unleashing of those uh, savings, which could be uh, some percent of $1.3, $1.4 trillion um, hitting the markets, could have uh, some inflationary impact. And look at money stock, and this is the money supply growth in the U.S., um, and the uh, shaded area is 2020, and you can see a little bit into it, we started to have a quite a significant ramp up. That came really when Powell took the steps in late March to uh, step in and, and, and provide the liquidity into the global system that was absolutely necessary. One of the key points, though, about the debate, I think, is how much of this is actually getting into the system uh, versus money being created. And there is some debate about that, that it's not quite as well known. Uh, people speculate the differences, but if it's not in the system, it's hard to have inflationary impact. But these numbers are massive. So uh, the case for deflation really starts with tech, as it usually does. Um, CapEx for technology is highly deflationary. And if you think about the challenge for companies because of COVID, coming out of it, they're trying to figure out how to do more with less and that is going to lead to further increases in CapEx, which we think are going to continue to lower costs and put downward pressure on uh, competitors to keep up. Um, reshoring and resilience of supply chains is an important element, but not all costs can be passed on to customers. And one of the interesting things um, that we saw, I mentioned Taiwan Semi is raising their prices on chips. About 15 percent is what's being discussed. This would be the second increase in chip prices for them for autos in the last two months. 
At the same time, Microsoft tried to increase prices on Xbox and got a lot of pushback from customers saying they would just switch to uh, PlayStation, and they did not pass that on through. So I think you have some real challenges as to what can get passed through to consumers in a difficult economic climate. And it will depend on the industries and a lot of the supply and demand dynamics. But we think that um, that will be a contrary force to uh, the reshoring and, and supply chain resilience issue. Debt levels do crowd out spending. Consumers have been very aggressively paying down their debt since 08. That has accelerated uh, in the last year, and you see that continue to happen um, where they're trying to dig out of the holes. And whether it's student debt or household debt, it's all being attempted to be lowered because people are getting checks that has kind of found money for them. Anything they can do to put it to work will help them uh, uh, coming out of this much better. And the last area is demographics, which I've talked a lot. Um, aging societies do spend less, um, and we're going to have scarring for a generation of unemployment. That puts more pressures on governments to uh, kind of carry people along. That actually creates more debt problems and we think actually leads to a case for uh, deflation as opposed to inflation. I wanted to just show you CAPS expenditures, and you can see just a snap-up after about mid-year last year, and we're returning to levels that are the highest levels we've seen. Um, and this is really important because that is what companies are going to be doing to manage their costs down in a very difficult environment. <clears throat> and they're also focusing on substituting labor for technology. That's going to continue. Um, you can see debt as a percent of GDP, um, and this is public debt as a percent of uh, total gross has started to come back down a little bit in the U.S., so that's actually uh, means that not all the money being put out is actually get, uh, is coming back out of the system, so it doesn't all create the inflationary effects that you would think. Um, so our view is uh, pretty simple. We do think there are pockets of inflation. Inflation has picked up somewhat, um, but it's going to be very transitory in our view. Um, we think the Fed's actions continue to be designed to prevent deflation, and they're going to wait longer because they'd rather have inflationary pressures. As Paul Volcker showed, you can solve inflation by raising rates to a high enough level that people stop borrowing. Deflationary spirals, they have less control over, and it's very difficult. So they're going to remain focused on their dual mandate of price stability and full employment, but their view is they're less concerned about the inflationary aspects of it and are willing to tolerate higher inflation, which is very unusual for them to come out as a public statement and say they're willing to do that, which means they'll be fine with overshoots if they believe it helps us get to full employment while they still have relative price stability. We think the tech boom is in the early stages still, and I know that's kind of hard to, for people to get their mind around, but we just think the te technological advances are creating the need to continue to upgrade and buy more technology. And you're seeing that Arnold touched on it when he spoke a couple weeks ago about Apple. We think Apple's going to do roughly 23 billion of net income this quarter, 100 billion of uh, revenues, uh, over 100 billion of revenues. Those are massive numbers. The 23 billion of net uh Profits would be the highest for a U.S. company, I believe, in history. Um, what, what's driving that? A lot of it's the refresh cycle on phones because old phones are not keeping up with the new technology and people designing the programs 
are only designing for the latest. So you start to phase out. So iPhone eights and, uh, and above are really in the current sweet spot, but there are a lot of phones that are not iPhone eights that are below that, that are going to be due for a refresh. And it could be 250 million phones. And think about it. The numbers are staggering. That's just one area. The technological changes continue. So we think this is a big, uh, area and it's not, and it's early and it's going to continue to weigh on it. Um, we think the cost of reshoring will be borne by both companies and consumers mitigating the upside. And I touched on debt levels and demographics. So for our take, we can see higher levels in inflation, but we're not going to see significantly higher levels. We think the Fed can control it relatively easily, uh, but they can't control it in all areas. And we've seen that with education, for example. It hadn't been a focus, but the educational costs have crept up at a much higher rate than other areas of inflation. And I'm reminded that Stan Druckenmiller reached out to a friend at the Federal Reserve a while back and said, I don't get your numbers. We see inflation everywhere, but in your actual reported numbers. And that's actually pretty accurate in a lot of areas, but we are starting to see where pressures are, are creating lower costs, and that is a, uh, a lot of pressure on the system. So the debate will rage on until we have clarity. The Fed's going to do what they can to keep uh, the temper tantrum from occurring like it did uh, back in the uh, early 2010 to the 2013 range. Um, so we don't see that, but we do wouldn't be surprised if the Fed actually intervenes to keep the long end of the market in check so that they don't have a big run up in inflation expectations. So, Mark, I'll stop there and open it up to questions or comments. Thank you, Stephen. Questions or comments? Stephen, this is Jim Flokowski. I'm Being the cynic that I am, is it fair to say that <laughs> now that the Biden administration uh, has taken over and, and, and you know, the establishment, if you will, um, is in full command, um, that, you know, you, you shouldn't expect to see any potential, you know, the black swan event of Donald Trump is no longer in the market. And so really you should see a very well managed to the best, you know, going back, you know, to 2016 and before, uh, uh, you know, the, that, that economy, right. With the fed, you know, and, and the administration and kind of everybody kind of work, trying to work on a global scale in unison. Is, is that a, is that a fair ex- expectation? Uh, let me start by saying we were, we're a pretty divided nation, um, both as a population and as for politics. Um, so I think that's not changed because just because we had a new administration come in, I think it'll be significantly better with higher certainty um, in terms of trying to determine the course. Um, and I do think one of the understated changes that um, will occur with the new administration is putting Janet Yellen in the Treasury role. Um, and the connection of the Fed and the Treasury to affect policy um, where they're not working across purposes is going to be a big help for the U.S. Um, and I do think that her knowledge um, of how markets work and how we've dealt with crises um, going back to early 2000s for her uh, will be an important element in how we come out of this. Uh, but I wouldn't say that we've had a completely new regime change given 
um, the political discourse that we have and divide that we have in the U.S. Um, but certain there'll be greater certainty, more it will be much more conventional approach to governing. Uh, but we have big issues and we're making, you know, we can't go back. What, whatever happened pre-COVID in any area of our lives, whether it's education, governing, uh, or running businesses, um, it's going to be very different, even how we live. It's, there is a demarcation that I believe will occur, uh, that occurred last year and the post-COVID world will be a whole new world with new norms. So I think we have to see how we evolve to that new norm for for the new administration. I don't I, I don't know if that answered your question, Jim. The what you were driving at, but well, no, no, this is good. My my question was was pretty open ended, uh, and so there there is no you know unless you have a crystal ball and you want to share that with me, um, you know I don't think anybody has you know, clarity or certainty with visibility going forward, and it's you know kind of everybody's everyone's best guess as to what their tea leaves say you know, the world is going to look like. Um, but but I, I do appreciate your comment about the still divided nation that we have uh, that is not going away. And, and, that, and that, I guess, you know, you know, gives some level of uncertainty to the economy, although I'm not sure exactly how much uncertainty. It may be here or there, but I don't think it's that much. For those who've been on the calls for the last 52 weeks, you know, I'm not a fan of either party. Um, but I do think this will be one of the most important uh, uh, work uh, four years or two years, depending on how you want to look at it, of how Congress, uh, the House, the Senate, uh, and the administration work together to deal with the problems that we have and set the tone for the nation differently than they maybe have in the past. Um, and do they create the uh, hope and optimism and effectiveness that dials down the rhetoric and gets us moving in a more productive way? Um, but I think when we look back uh, with the crystal ball, they will the actions of how the leaders behave during this period will be really the determinant of how we move forward, um, both as a nation and I think more globally as well. Stephen, maybe to, to, to that point, um, from some of the comments, you know, that I heard last week from Yellen, it seems as though that, that she and, and the Biden administration are very much on the same page. Um, it looks like the Fed is, is also, you know, willing to stand behind it. You know, we've got the, the $2,000 check coming. I remember, you know, your comments the other week that, you know, mm -hmm. I think actually, um, you were uh, prescient uh, in that because I think Biden actually reiterated your points of, uh, you know, something else coming in the uh, in the March, you know, April time frame. And then, as you mentioned, infrastructure. So and, and just as a footnote, it seems I, I saw a, a clip on the squad uh, recommending universal basic income, of not just two thousand dollars one shot, but two thousand dollars a month. Uh, you know, as as a program. So it seems like the, the spigot potentially is like full on. Uh, there seems to be a lot of alignment at the government, you know, to get that done. So that would portend perhaps maybe a little extra juice for the inflationary story. 
And, you know, do you, I guess the question is, do you agree with that? And, and do you think that that's going to propel, you know, markets, you know, further up? Uh, I think, I think we'll have bounces this year um, where we'll have pullbacks that could feel awful and feel like the beginning of the end, but they will be just the normal healthy blowups. Um, so I think we're biased up anyway. Um, but I think the uh, period we're in right now with politics is often like the time where you hear a motivational speaker and you're leaving and you're all this all excited and you get to your car and you forgot why you're all excited. Um, I think we're going to have a period with all the stuff that's being thrown out where it all sounds great or terrible and it'll come in somewhere in the middle. So I think the 1.9 billion becomes more like 900 billion. Um, 1.9 trillion becomes 900 billion in terms of what they want to do now. Um, I don't think we could even come close to affording $2,000 a month, although uh, um, it sounds interesting, but um, yeah. you know, it's a little aggressive. We're, we're going to struggle to do 2,000 once. Um, so I just think we're in that period where everyone's throwing out stuff that sounds good. And then practically we'll get back to, a more normal um, discourse and more realistic. And I think that'll dampen down some of the uh, inflation expectations. Um, the Fed is still going to be very aggressive. I mean, Powell, when he says we have no uh, plans to raise rates, we're not, we're not thinking about raising rates, we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. I think he means that right now. And um, I'm not sure what it would take to move him off that. Uh, until they see unemployment down to levels that were more comfortable for them. Um, so I think this is just one of those periods where everything sounds great until you actually have to vote. And I don't think, I think both parties are pretty divided on how they would move forward. So I think it's going to be tougher to get stuff done. Yeah, it looks like, isn't there a little bit of a roadmap? Is there sorry, a little bit? Of, it seems like we've already learned a lot in a week, right? I mean, uh, Biden signed all these executive orders, which seem to be slanted towards appeasing, you know, his, you know, the the, the more left interest in the party. But then the Senate, if you see the Senate agreed to, they basically got rid of the filibuster and they basically said everything's going to have to be a negotiated compromise in terms of actually the legislative agenda. And, you know, so there's executive orders and then there's a legislative agenda. And rather than go pick a fight and have these battles that nobody wins on the legislative agenda, uh, Biden can do what he wants on the uh, executive orders, uh, which he's done already. And then we get uh, Congress that actually does work together a little bit. Does that make some sense, maybe? Yeah, it does. And actually, the executive orders are interesting in that um, executive orders tend to go towards regulatory items um, and or you know, some of the other more controversial ones, but regulatory is a big area. And a lot of what was was done was to reverse executive orders issued by the previous administration. So um, which actually does have an impact. I saw a study that said um, that under the uh, last Bush administration, we had uh, ex uh, regulation cost the economy about two uh, uh, 0.25 percent. Um, of GDP. Uh, under Trump, it was around 0.15. And under the uh, Obama administration, it was around half a percent. So 
you know, moving back there, there is an impact on growth that is real um, and puts additional burden on the policymakers to offset that. So I think there are going to be puts and takes throughout, but um, I do think they're going to move to appease and then they're going to move to uh, uh, kind of work together. So I do think you're on the right tra track there, Duncan. So then the question is, what is, if you've got a Fed that's used to just, you know, printing money, and then that flows into the, the wealthiest of the uh, population, which has been, ever since I've been in the business, that's what's been going on. And Yellen is basically on record as saying they've got to find a way to use some of these policy tools so it, 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 it broadens uh, the impact on and if the Fed and the Treasury work together on this, what could they do to broaden the impact? Uh, I mean, personally, I don't believe the 2000. I believe the discussion about universal income, but I'm with you. I just don't think they can ever get that through uh, a negotiation. Um, so is are there policy tools they could use to sort of, you know, have, you know, this traditional aggressive Fed policy benefit more people than the people sitting on this call? I mean, a, a good tax policy would go a long way for the U.S. And just to start, I don't mean, you know, raising taxes only. I mean, we have so many loopholes. It's so hard to figure out our tax system and tax policy, and it does skew to help those with assets. Um, so I think getting a good tax policy would go a long way. We're big believers in infrastructure, but infrastructure has to be done where you combine the federal doing what they do best with the states doing what they do best. Just not having that partnership and not involving the private sector in that will lead to just more misallocation of capital. Um, but infrastructure done right can have a big impact. Um, we just have to get it right. And the onshoring and pro-onshoring uh, type initiatives uh, do help help the economy. They manufacturing bring that back has a big multiplier effect. So you can you can shift policies in the right direction. You know the difference between the 750 on the uh, minimum wage and 15 is somewhere between there is going to be the answer that they come up with. It's not going to be a jump to 15. Um, but I think the move that's there's a lot of pressure on companies that isn't Fed policy, but just general sentiment that's going to create some difference, some behavioral changes as well. And I think when you bring all those together, you start to move the needle. But the Fed can only do what they've already done there. They can keep rates low. They can try and manage the yield curve and they can keep money, pumping money into the system. But if you don't have the fiscal policies to support that, um, you're going to just waste the money and, and you will create inflation without the offset to get the growth that you need. So I think it's a real challenge, but I think it's going to be more fiscal than monetary that's going to carry the day. Other thoughts, questions? I wish Jonathan Dane was on. He'd take the inflation side all day. So, Chris White, I always credit you for seeing the derivatives market in 2006. What, how do you see these, these themes? You're on mute, though. You're still on. You're on mute. 
I don't have a good opinion on future inflation right now. I have been very surprised by the huge amount of liquidity that's been supplied into the marketplaces all over the world and the lack of any response here uh, uh, on price levels. And there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, only some of which I think I understand. Uh, put it another way right now, if you go back and start looking at the velocity of money over this period of time, go try to explain that to yourself. So I, I don't, I don't feel like I understand right now. All right. Uh, yeah, Chris, that's, that's a really good point. You know, velocity has actually collapsed, uh, you know, in the last year or so. I mean, it's been trending down since 1980, and uh, even from the GFC, uh, it was continuing to trend down. So a lot of that money, you know, just stayed in the system. It never got into the pockets of consumers. And, you know, I, I think, you know, sort of what's different this time is, is that we're seeing, you know, direct stimulus be mailed out to consumers. You know, Stephen, you pointed out the higher savings rate, things like that. So, um, and I just, actually, I just pulled up the Fred chart on it, and there's been a ever so slight tick up in, uh, in velocity. So, you know, who knows? But at the same time, we are still way below levels of 1960. They go back to 1960. So we got a long way to go as far as velocity, you know, starting to make an impact. But, it, but it's an excellent point. Yeah, there's something yeah, really the anomalous has been happening here. Uh, I think it's related uh, partly to the reduction in consumer debt and uh, partly to, if you like, depression behavior uh, by consumers. And, and, and I really feel like there are a lot of pieces of this that I don't understand also. And, uh, th and that makes it difficult to. Well, if you can't understand, you're, you're at that 1% of the 1%. What should we be doing? You know, if we'd be having some thoughtful, you know, you know, the conferences and once, once or twice a quarter can help us sort of dig deep into this or we can bring the right people. I'd be curious, you know, maybe here or later to know what it is you'd like to understand better and we could bring those people that could shine those lights on. Mark, I do think Bill touched on an important point. Money printed that doesn't get into the system doesn't create inflation. And since really since 2010, when we've been printing money, we have not seen the money all go into the system. A lot of it stopped in the banking system because the banks weren't lending because borrowers weren't borrowing. And that became more exaggerated last year when people didn't know in the second quarter how bad things were going to get or how soon we were going to recover. So when people pull in their the oars and don't borrow and are not spending, it's hard to get inflationary pressures regardless of how much money has been printed. So that's a big element of it. And, and you see that with the debt pay downs, that's a very productive use of the money for so many people and so many businesses. So the, the, that's one of the challenges. And the real inflation has come in asset values. 
And that's not broadly shared either. So that creates this further problems. But it, if money doesn't hit the system, it doesn't have an impact on the system. It just hits the headlines. I, I I it's, it's in the system someplace, Stephen. It's just a question of where and how, right? Yeah, it's sitting. It's a lot of it's sitting on the banks. Well, I, I assume I, I'm I, not sure that it is sitting on the banks. Is so. it in Tesla? But uh, isn't it in Tesla? No, no matter, the, the money is cycling at a much much different rate than it used to, and that, that's yep. a that's a big deal. So think, if you want to know what to do about it, Mark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my guess is keep some commodity exposures. I suspect if you take a look at recessionary times in the velocity of money, you have a decrease uh, in recessionary times of the velocity of money. And Historically, so, that is mostly true, but not to this extent. This is weird. So, so I think there's a cultural change. So we made the, the comparison to the 1960s, and I think the culture in America is substantially different. I, I wonder how much of lifestyle goes into that velocity of money. You know, uh, Jonah will talk about you know the number of people that are sitting at home gaming uh, and 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 not not interacting or mingling. They're you know become couch potatoes or or game potatoes uh, and game. You know, so I think. It would be an interesting way of analyzing it is to sit down and understand, you know, from, from period to period, you know, the composition, uh, that, of the velocity of money and, and what has changed and where it has changed, um, and going through expansionary times, right? It's traditionally recession, uh, everybody quits spending money and everyone gets laid off from work and, and, and the Fed drops rates. And so everybody feels good and starts buying toasters and refrigerators and cars again, uh, and and you create expansion. You know those days now. Or now that we're in a global environment, you know, you've been able to offshore all your all your uh, manual work to Vietnam and China, so you don't have those traditional uh, pressures that are inflationary. Uh, and so I think the entire Equation has changed you know, quite a bit, and I think that would be an interesting conversation and, and analysis, you know, to really understand, you know, what that, you know, what that, uh, uh, you know, looks like. I would just add, if you think back to 2008, we were talking about having a once in a lifetime uh, envir- economic environment, and then 10 years later, we have another once in a lifetime. Ten, you know, environment uh, that was really uh, stressful on the system. And you think about that window, it's not too often in our history you've had that type of change. And I think some of the uh, uncertainty about why money isn't flowing differently, I think when you have those two stacked up on each other, it changes behaviors. And I think we're going to have a very significant, more permanent behavioral change coming out of uh, this pandemic, um, depression, we, children. Yep. Then we've yeah. seen, and I think we're changing the culture back to the thirties and forties, not to the sixties. Uh, I, so I think there's probably some truth to that as well. I'm inclined to think that, you know, that might be right. But on your comment about, uh, rare events, we seem to have the hundred year flood here in Houston every three years. 
Well, and that's sort of a message from God that the way we're thinking about this doesn't make any sense, right? And yet the Californians are still all moving in. No, it's a, it, this is an unusual time. And I think, you know, you know, Tom, for the advertising and stuff that we were talking about, you can't do what you did in the past. And I think that's why you're starting to see some of the changes that we were talking about earlier there. I think we're going to see different behavior from companies, from consumers and from governments. And it's just what that means and how different it is is going to be really a big determinant for how the markets and the economy actually act. The other thing to do, Mark, is to buy companies with pricing power, right? Yep. So. And hope it's sustainable. <laughs> with, with, yeah, with some, some companies with some moats around them, so to speak. There aren't that many. Well, it's, I'm thinking, look, I've been in the limestone business a long time ago. And if I think of infrastructure spending, um, limestone transportation costs. There's, there's some moat there. I was going to ask you about the. Well, you. How do you see infrastructure playing out, Stephen? Have you seen any signals on that? And the, it's the one thing they agree on, and this the one thing they can never get right. So it's <laughs> as Duncan said. You know, we've had the same conversation. If I go back through our outlooks, I, I actually am tired of writing about it um, because it's either the federal government the state and local governments or the businesses that have to do it. And we've never had a coordinated effort um, to get it right. And, you know, and if you look at just one area, the internet, right? We rank something like 28th in internet speeds behind Greece. Okay. I, I, I know our balance sheet isn't that great, but Greece's isn't all that much better. And uh, that should not be for, for the leading economy in the world and it's completely fixable we just have to commit to it and that's that's the challenge so i think that is an area that um you'll start to see some work done in uh, but we can do so much more and get really productive returns on it if we could get it right but that's been a big if got it your, your internet question is an interesting one i bet if you look at that you'll find that that is not true in msa's that's very true in RSAs, right? In, 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 in very rural places where you, it's very spotty in this country in terms of the haves and the have nots kind of across the board on, on, on everything, including, you know, access. Well, there's big parts of New York City and Long Island that would disagree with you, Jim, um, in terms of that, because we have not great uh, service here either. Um, so I, I, it's certainly the rural area needs a whole focus by our government on. Um, but the cities, you know, we, we don't have enough towers. We don't have enough soft cells. We don't have enough of what we need to be efficient there. Interesting. We'll let the 5G guys talk about that, Mark. Yeah, you need many more towers for 5G. And then you uh, need the soft cells that go with the towers so that you get the short uh, uh, transmissions going as well. Other other thoughts, questions? Unless you guys, this is Yvonne again, unless you've discussed this already, what about Biden Harris um, committing to buy America? Will that kind of have a, a kind of a lift? Are we prepared for that? Is that 
we have the skills to, you know, um, people to just launch businesses without them failing. Um, Steve, you know, sorry. Um, the cottage, it says cottage. Do you think they'll help with the cottage businesses? Will they help the bigger? It, it, is this realistic or is it just, um, if anybody knows anything about it, I think that's going to be really instrumental. Jim, would that help you? Philip Kosky. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, 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 I like the idea, obviously, of Buy America. You know, however, um, you know, the devil's always in the details. And so, you know, really, truly, what does that mean? It, because, you know, over the last probably 20, 30 years, we have decentralized from America. Uh, and, and as a result, you know, we really don't have the, the productive capacity as much as we used to 20, 30 years ago uh, from an equipment perspective. We don't have the skilled people. We don't you know, try and hire. I'm in southwestern Pennsylvania, my companies, and everyone has the same problem. You can't find skilled workers. And when you do find a skilled worker, you hope that they can pass the drug test. Uh, you know, and so while it sounds really, really, really good, uh, being able to deliver and execute <laughs> on that is, 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 is problematic. So then you get into, well, if you're doing a, you know, a, a, on a small basis, you know, where it's not capital intensive, uh, and you don't have to spend millions of dollars, uh, and in a couple of years to put equipment in place, um, then, you know, you're, you're probably, talking about an entirely different product that's made in America uh, than our traditional uh, CapEx that has ultimately the greatest GDP multiplier and has been the, in the 1960s, was the source of income for the middle class. Um, so I, I think, I think it, it reminds me of, of Barack Obama's you know, shovel-ready jobs. It's, it sounded great. There just weren't any. Yeah, I would just add that I think one of the challenges with a mandate like that is what what has to be made in America because we can't source all the parts for everything that we want in America right now. Um, and how long will it take for us to have the capability to do that is a question. Um, I agree with you, Jim. We have a skill issue, too. I have a client that's a third-generation uh, specialty metals maker. They do things like clips for LED lighting and such. And they've had trouble for a decade finding tool and die guys. Um, and they've offered to train people. They were offering $25 uh, an hour, uh, four day work week and the like. And they just were having a terrible time finding them where the, the head of the company was deciding whether they were going to sell it and keep the intellectual property or just sell out completely or move the company to uh, a more, uh, uh, a better labor market, such as the Carolinas or uh, some of the uh, southern states. So that's going to be an issue that we can't solve overnight by an order. If this administration wanted to do something creative on that front, um, instead of instead of simply the you know the offset is is you know somebody gets hired or they're on unemployment, um, they would use partial unemployment uh, to underwrite training for companies. And so you create a person where the company can hire somebody, train them. Uh, uh, that person's incentivized by getting partial unemployment 
um, and paid from the company. And so the, the net take home is greater than what they're taking home uh, as, and simply on, uh, on unemployment. Uh, and you get a productive workforce out of the out of it. Now, that's that 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 will never happen you know, because it's a practical business solution that requires a public private partnership. Um, but that's a very practical way of enticing people to not go to college and take on thirty thousand dollars of debt. Um, but go learn a trade and and become a uh, you know start start making good money immediately or, or quickly. Uh, and, and then the next thing that though you have to do is you have to be able to provide that individual you've just enticed to forego college and become a skilled uh, tradesman. Um, you've got to be able to provide that person with a pathway that they know they're going to have a job and a career and not subject to the whim of, of an administration. You and know, that's, that's tough. Jim, I, and I want to respond to what you're saying because um, Chris who works with uh, schools, um, what she does is she works with uh, charter schools and she goes into the community to ask what skills and trades are in demand. And that's how they decide what the curriculum will be for their students so that it ensures that when they graduate, they have a pathway. So what you're talking about uh, makes a lot of sense. Probably seven years ago, I went to Penn State's, um, uh, one of their branch campuses in Pittsburgh. Uh, Penn State's a land-grant college. Oh, uh-huh. And, 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 and said to the person, at Penn, the, the person in charge of Penn State, you need, you need people in the seats. Um, you know, it'd be really creative for you to come up with a program that you know, call it an applied engineering or whatever, right? And offer people a pathway yeah. to go to Penn State and become a skilled welder, and, and and then and then be able to go back and become a skilled electrician. You know, it solves the it solves the issue of you know juniors not going to vocational school. He's going to Penn State. He gets to wear the T-shirt, um, but you actually learn a skilled trade in the process. You don't have to go for four years. You can go for you know two years, become a skilled. You know, effectively taking the place of a community college um, right. on a higher scale basis, and you know that you know that fell on completely deaf ears the entire idea. Um, but I think you know that is that is a possibility of a solution that appeals to you know mom, dad, granny, grandpa, that juniors at you know state U, um, and uh, you know and they're still learning education, they're learning a trade, uh, but. Again, there, there are lots of creative things that can be done, but it doesn't really fit well with a government who's not not accustomed to only in a crisis, you know. And if it's not a crisis, they don't react quickly. That's my experience in D.C. The other issue for a lot of business is going to be the uh, regulatory cost increase of trying to uh, show that you are buying America and buying American and doing you know, you're sourcing the right way and all that. And that can actually, depending on how the rules are written, could actually push up uh, uh, regulatory costs on companies to, because sometimes depending on uh, how many parts you're uh, sourcing, you could actually have to hire someone just to track all that. Uh, so we have to see how they, how they actually write this stuff as well. Yep. I'm sorry, go ahead, Yvonne. 
No, I, I encourage you to speak. Um, I, 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 or I'll just really quickly say I sat on the NYSERDA um, conversation for the New York uh, State, and I have to find the information, but, um, you know, exactly what the details were. But actually it was a, it was a strategy discussion with the government, of, you know, government task force Pearsons and some business. And, um, and it was interesting. They were focusing on, um, training and education for for youth and college, and um, another gentleman who's older, like myself and, and many of us here, he was like, what about the 30-year-old who has two children who's now going to be out of work because of other occupations? They need to be considered and trained. So, yeah, I'm on the same page with you guys, and my family's had tons of businesses, and I've worked with a lot of startups, and you don't have the right leadership and you give them all the money you want, but uh, it won't survive. It's just a cluster of must. Jim, can you move your business to Ohio? Uh, it, it, interesting. I tried buying a company recently in Ohio, but I, uh, it fell through as normal business uh, fall through, but um, the deals fell, fell through. But I, uh, I, you know, look, I think there's a, an incredible opportunity um in, in lots of areas, and uh, you know, I, 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 but I think there's a leadership um, that has to buy in. And I remember meeting with somebody, a fairly senior person in DC, probably you know seven, eight years ago, and in, in, in the State Department, and we were talking about some of this, and he said, he said, well, you know, Jim. What you're talking about is really creative, but but Washington D.C. moves in in small increments, and uh, you know, and, and unless there's a crisis, there's just no reason to you know stick your neck out. Um, and 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 that was the attitude of a career politician, or you know, a, a side um, appointed uh, person in the State Department, and so. Yeah, that I walked away from that feeling pretty discouraged. That you know, I'm not sure how you create, um, in, in you know, in, in unless you have the support of you know somebody meaningful. Um, I, I think things are really, really, really hard to get done. You know, in, in Jim, this is Sarah again. You know, um, so much of what you're saying I see all the time in education. And one of the issues, because I worked in government and politics as well, and one of the issues um, are the metrics that people use for outcomes. In other words, for in education, people usually want to see measures and outcomes happen immediately. And we know that change in education, it takes three to five years. And so what usually happens, people aren't, quote, patient enough sometimes because they want to see something happen immediately. And I think part of this is educating individuals that change doesn't always happen overnight and change takes some time. So it's, I mean, I, we see that all the time in education because people say education is a sector that actually is one of the most difficult to navigate. And it's because there's this whole, if it doesn't happen tomorrow, we're going to change. If this doesn't happen, it's very reactionary. I think the person who's probably had the greatest influence in in America over the past 
45, 50 years has been Michael Milken. Um, you know, when he came out in the 80s and, and cash flow based lending and, and really built that, you know, he, he was at the heart of that behavior of looking at, you know, the next quarter's earnings, the cash flow, you know, wasteful spending, big corporations who used to have R&D departments and spend tremendous amounts of money not really knowing what the fruits of that research was going to be. And it might not be for five years or 15 years, right? Um, all, all got wiped out in the need for, you know, profits in the next third, you know, three months. Um, and so, you know, Michael Milken at some, at some point, you know, should have a book written, not necessarily positively about, you know, the negative impact that he created, um, uh, in the eighties. I think it, I think it is by far the longest lasting impactful on the culture of, uh, of, uh, you know, and what we're, we're, we're dealing with today. Hey, hey Jim, just a, a, another quick question, perhaps down another rabbit hole, but, uh, you know, talking about like long-term impacts, you know, the demise of the defined benefit plan, especially on, you know, factory workers, you know, like you're talking about, who, you know, where mobility is not necessarily an issue. Do you think that if tax and, and accounting policies, you know, could somehow be changed so that DB plans could, again, be a viable option, you know, for businesses, do you think that that would have an impact on, uh, you know, on attracting talent? It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. First of all, I'm sure you're familiar with all the pension plans and the defined pension plans and that are grossly underwater and, and that nightmare that's about to happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, if you look at the, uh, I remember looking at a, at a company several years ago that had a small union and they were part of a multi-employer pension fund that had two billion of assets and four billion of liabilities and had a, a target return of you know, 8% in order to get a, uh, 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 be able to afford it. Uh, and so I'm talking about the state of New Jersey, but just, <laughs> just, just it, put those numbers a little bit higher. You know, and, 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 and 70% of, of, of the assets were in fixed income. So it, it was never going to happen. Uh, and, you know, and so you look at that, and, you know, and part of the problem with, you know, defined programs, obviously plans are, you know, the only way that works is if you have a, a correct pyramid. If you have an inverse pyramid, uh, that's a problem. Uh, if you're able to, you know, keep the gerbil running on the wheel, you know, that's, you know, that's necessary. So it, it works if everything works. But yeah. when you start getting breakdown, um, you know, then, you know, then you have, you know, the, the, the numbers working against you. Um, so I think, it goes back, you know, I, you know, I think people who invested in 401ks as part of their, their union reorganization, uh, uh, benefits obviously have done well, uh, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and so I don't think necessarily defined contribution plans or defined benefit plans are the answer. Um, but what I think is the answer is being able to say to a third, an 18 year old or a 22 year old or even a 32 year old, you know, it's worthwhile for you to go and become a skilled tradesperson and you will be able to get, you know, work and work overtime and make a very good income and put 
you know, put your children, go play baseball with your children and put bread on the table and send them to school uh, and, 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 uh, um, and not have, you know, again, $30,000 of school debt trying to figure out what your job is. Um, you know, that is the program. If you're, if, you know, a, a Rebuild America program you know, is really a grassroots program. And, and, and that, to me, a Buy America program um, as, a, um, as a title isn't sufficient. Uh, you know, it's really looking under the covers and seeing what the silos are under the cover that supports, you know, that, um, you know, that, that, that very good sounding uh, uh, goal. We've talked a lot about uh, how the government needs to split their budget between an operating budget and investment budget, and that would get to the measurements and going beyond just the quarter that you and uh, Sarah were talking about. But you would do it as a, as a company would do it with a real return on investment, and then you would reward the programs that worked and cut the ones that don't. That is not how Washington works right now. Washington works on the, you know, do this for me, I'll do that for you. And, you know, they count the votes, not the uh, success of the projects. Well, I think Washington works on the election cycle. Right. Right. I mean, Washington works based on the House gets reelected every two years and one third of the Senate gets reelected every two years. And to get reelected, you have to go back to your voters and say, look what I've done for you. Well, the term limit amendments out there again, so probably coming from the wrong mouth right now, but, um, you know, sooner or later, it would be a good idea to build some vocal support for that kind of thing. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would change it. I mean, I've said this before, right, but they've, 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 they've had so many failed policies over the last 20 years that would have prevented us from being in as bad a position we are with this unbalanced wealth effect. And they almost always shoot them down for political reasons. You know, just just what you're saying, you know, it's about getting elected. It's not about doing anything for the people. It's really disgusting. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And by the way, here's the worst thing. I'll give you one last thing I heard, okay? The wealthiest friend I have just got a stimulus check last week. And that's all, that, that, that is all you need to know. That is all you need to know. That's either a bad statement on your wealthiest friend or a complete flaw in the government. Well, flaw in the government. Wait, wait, what was it a loan or was it a check? Just got the check in the mail or, or you know, the d- deposit, you know. Uh, we didn't like billions of dollars of checks went out for the first stimulus round to dead people. I mean, I, I think what we're talking about is how could somebody fundamentally trust the government to solve these problems? Yeah. They've not demonstrated that they have, one, the desire to, nor the capability to, right? Correct. All they can do is kind of throw money at a problem. They're, they're, they're just, they don't have the, the, I mean, they do. Their job is to get elected, right? Once, yeah. once they're in place, right. they just want to get reelected. They're not going to solve these problems for us. And by the way, the SBA thing, that was a disaster, too. They sat there and just they said, how many people can we give jobs to or, you know, we'll save them their salary for two months. But they didn't do anything for small companies trying to manage their supply chains and their inventory management and their their financing for that. And that's put a couple of businesses out. You know, that's put a lot of people out of business. 
So, you know, they saved a job for two you know, or three months, but they didn't save a business that would have preserved a job for yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and there's no, there's no sort of accountability for this after the fact. Even. And no, no. So what could this group do, right? How do you create more accountability on this stuff? It just seems to me, now I'm on my rant, right? But, you know, seems to me term limits and really calling out in some sort yeah, of public forum failures yes. of the solutions is something that has to start happening. Not to pile on the stupidity, but I heard on the news last night, California gave out $11 billion to fraudulent gig unemployment claims funded by the federal government. And it might be up to $30 billion. Just crazy. Is this the same problem that was before, or is this a new problem? Because they've been doing it. There was another scam. That yeah, well... Guys in the but, prison system. But another, money. another thing that you were talking about was, you know, like, uh, Dun uh, Duncan, you were talking about PPP specifically. You know, and I know Stephen was talking about United States, you know, buying American and stuff like that. Situation like me, you know, I have developers that work for me for $12 an hour that in America would cost $212 an hour. And it's just doesn't, it doesn't, I can't survive if by hiring American developers and the EIDL was an absolute shit show, pardon my French. And they didn't focus at all on the EIDL and just the PPP. And so if they could start looking at, at, like you said, the small businesses and startups and not just think buy American, I want to buy American. I want to use American, but I don't have that ability. So there's a lot of things that need to be taken into account. Mark, one last thought. While we, while we often rant a lot about uh, the way China behaves towards uh, parts, big segments of their population and, and also other countries, um, one of the things they do exceptionally well, which we should take a page from, is they do rolling five-year plans that are phenomenal, and it provides a roadmap with measurables that you can run a country through changes in administrations, that it, it provides a glide path that is really one of the things that's powered them to uh, the success that they've had over the last 30 years in becoming such a dominant player. And it, when you read it and understand the details and the thought that goes into it, and then you hear the stuff that comes out of D.C., you just sit there and shake your head and say, we could do that, why don't we? And it all comes down to poly, the, poly, the way the parties are run. What was it? The Japanese would have those plans, too, with Nietzsche or whatever, but that's a longer. They they can plan because, A, they have to, and, B, they know they can enforce it. We're, we're just, for the good or the bad, we're, we're America. We, uh... I can't see that happening. Yeah. Unless, it's a war, unless it's a wartime crisis crisis regime, and then that creates fundamental change. We had a pretty strong plan in the 30s. We had a pretty strong plan after World War II, so it's not beyond our capabilities. You know what Churchill said? You can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. <laughs> I got to go. Ciao. Thanks, Chris. Enjoyed it. See you, Chris. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Thanks. Einstein said, stay away from negative people. They'll have a problem for every solution.
Um, um, by the way, Jim Hawk and MJ, I, want, I wanted you guys to connect. MJ's looking at how to scale things, and you've scaled things before, Jim. Hey, Jim. Hi there. Hey. Happy to. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Mark. And Zoe, let's do the Space Frontier thing. Uh, uh, team, let's make sure those calendar invites get out on the breakouts. Um, for 5G, Stephen, Nitsen, we need to make it for 11 because he's busy with you at 1030. Uh, yeah. Okay. You know what other area, Mark, that I think is interesting and I haven't heard uh, enough about is AI. Yeah. Oh God, they've written us in the hole. No, I'm, I'm with you. I think there's a, a and street, 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 uh, Eric Lindbergh has done the most of the guys hire. Yeah, cause I'm, I, there's a lot in the world with mental yeah. health and how AI is, uh, being able to get to populations that don't have access. And it's an interesting topic. It's in a way what MJ's quasi doing. It's not, you know, well, he's created a community. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to know, MJ, whether are, are you involved at all in any AI endeavors? Yeah, I mean, we call it logic or, or dumb AI. We call it dumb AI only because the AI AI is, you know, is very kind of, um, is a lot more uh, Facebook and Instagram and all those guys. They use kind of machine learning and, and very, very intricate AI. So we, so it's really logic-based. And, and AI is basically the more you learn, the more the system learns. And so that way it, it creates a better user experience. So we use it, we call it dumb AI from our standpoint. Mm-hmm which is kind of high-end logic, but dumb AI. But, yeah, artificial intelligence is something that is very important because the more and more you can understand user behavior, the better and better you can curate an experience, you know, uh, that's better for people. Yeah, you know? and I'm dealing, I'm dealing with some folks who are talking to me because they, they're working on empathetic AI. That's, their, that's how they're talking about it. So, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very, very, I mean, this is, AI is really the future. It's, yeah. it's happening now, right? Sarah, maybe that could be uh, at least one of the themes you you touch on in, uh, in the next education. I, yeah, um, it, it's a very interesting um, theme in education, actually. And that's why I bring it up, because I don't know enough about it. And I, and people have been coming to me because of the work that I do. They're looking at AI in, in, um, in that work. I mean, just a very summary that uh, Eric Lindbergh thinks that, that, that the system has, that all this rote memorization should just go out the door because we're all going to have these, that's it, one feature of AI mm-hmm. that uh, we need to, we need to be, you know, again, the masters of the machines and, and learn those talents rather than doing what the machines can do for us. Yeah. Um, and my but, doctoral students, the doctoral students that I'm working with, uh, I'm working with social entrepreneurial and education and social change. Those are the courses I'm teaching. And, um, it's fascinating what they're researching and coming up with. Yep. And Mark. Yep, can, I, can I share a quick moment? Uh, Leslie and I have had some interesting conversations um, on the topic of mentorship, and it kind of came off of Jonah Blake's remark a 
a few weeks ago that young adults need this the most. Mm -hmm. And we're discussing, like, how does this become an integral part of education, not just through college, but lifelong learning? And can 361 be a part of that? Well, two, two, one is, I think, so important to almost even your all your philanthropic initiatives. If you don't sort of that reinforcement on the mentor level that I'm just going to throw on the screen, the in, if you. For me, this is, it all started with mentors. I yeah. went first to go to college in my family and, you know, I wish I had someone tell me, go work for a law firm before you go to law school. <laughs> I wish I had that mentor, but it's all good. But yeah, mentors is, um, and they help you all through life and you have yeah. to, it, these are loops. So big, big brothers, big sisters, but you name it, you name, could be just training in, in Jim's company. Right. Everybody needs mentors. Yeah. Yeah. That could be something, you know, that we can help reinforce. I mean, we have yeah. the alumni connecting thing that is part of that. But I think you need, a, you need mentors all the way through. So I'm looking at all the big brothers and big sisters right here on screen. You know, these are people with the, with their heart in the right place and, and the knowledge and the experience to change lives, you know. So. Well, I think, Mike, you used the, um, the referral that this is a community of elders who can share expertise. And the question is whether that's a formal or less formal type of relationship and how to nurture those relationships throughout the course of your life and share it with your people and those who you can make yourself available to. I'm just excited about this community piloting some kind of, I mean, Mark's done such an incredible job with the technology of bringing this, this community together. It seems it would be not, not an, it would be a substantial effort to build it out and to bring in a younger audience to, 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 to use this forum, you know, this, this opportunity. So if, if everybody is familiar with YPO, uh, Young President, uh, they have a couple rules. One is that you have to return a phone call within 24 hours, uh, or 48 hours. Uh, so it's like respect and engagement. I go like, I'd like to have that part of our mantra as well, that everybody takes at least a five, 10 minute courtesy call. Um, I don't, I was just sort of thinking, yeah, you could always bring the young people, but you got to, like Denison is always like, help the students, help the students. Well, help the other alumni. Like, take the mask on yourself before you help. You got, we have to help each other too. Yeah. I always feel like maybe we should all, like, sort of take on some, you know, be a mentor and a mentee for each other on different ways. Absolutely uh, agree. And well, one, one thing, Mark, that we may want to, the SBA has a great mentorship program that they kind of matchmake people. And so they, they'll have a list of mentors and then you can read up on them. And so maybe if there's some sort of kind of a matchmaking, uh, matchmaking methodology and you can kind of read up, which you've done a great job on the 361 app to kind of where you have, where you have profiles of people, then, and, and more importantly, those people are willing to help. Then you could read the bios on that person and request and that person, he or she would be able to volunteer 
once a week or whatever, whatever it may be. And you already have that built. And so you could probably set up a matchmaking system that way. Yeah. I mean, it could be very specific skill-based mentoring, or it could be a broader, I need a, you know, I need a, a, a Yoda. So, you know, it depends on what it is you need. You know, there are, and there are certainly, um, like I just, was invited. I spoke with the o- uh, organizational studies students in, at Denison, and they go around all different areas talking to people as men, you know, to get mentorship, to get ideas. It might be interesting, to, um, Leslie, and uh, you know, to talk about having, since we are all affiliated, maybe with alumni, to bring in like once a month students that can listen in on certain aspects. Again, I think this is, you know, it has to be a life cycle study, right? I I think to focus on students is a great, uh, it's a great and noble aspirational thought, but I've been approached by so many entrepreneurs who are just, you know, totally underwater with, you know, what's my next step? Not, not what should I be doing a year from now? What should I be doing two weeks from now? You know, how do I source talent? How do I deal with uh, raising capital? How do I build a deck? I mean, that last example is kind of blocking and tackling, right? But I mean, I, I think the whole life cycle needs mentoring. And, and, you know, to be I honest, I, I, I can use my, I can use some myself. Uh, so, um, you know, lifelong learning is what it's all about. We need to push that down and up. And, uh, the need just so far outstrips what, what, you know, 361 might be able to do. So I just, I think you have to find a, a you know, a starting point. I volunteered for the Kellogg Alumni Board. They have basic, uh, they, they put together groups for consulting for nonprofits. Um, and, you know, that's a model that could work also. It doesn't have to be nonprofits, obviously. But, you know, student all the way through the, the life cycle, I think, makes sense. Full spectrum. Well, this also touches what, what Charles Way, we talked about having some of a curriculum for the professional athletes who are sort of a lot of them are first gens, but maybe there's some kind of life cycle bit there. Um, yeah, I, I, I love students, but I think it's, um, the alumni program is sort of, that's sort of what they do. I think we should do something a little different. Um, tied to the students, students, by the way, can help and teach us a lot. So I think we should definitely get them involved. Um, but I also want to make sure we mentor each other. Yeah, that's something Yvonne mentioned. You know, I mean, the 361 community helping one another is is a is a fantastic place to start um, because there's there's a powerful community here, and uh, there's only a couple degrees of separation when you speak to people. But when you put the whole 361 community together, everybody can probably get sorted out in in some way, shape, or form. Right. Like, I'm looking at Joe Starncheck. You should meet. Have you met Joe? Talking to me? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're talking over here on the chat line. You and Joe? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. We've been in a, many a breakout together. So, yeah. Good, good. That's yeah. why we do breakouts. So. Yeah, so, breakouts. It, Great. Thanks so much. Um, all right. I've got a call. Uh, with a Michigan guy who sits in Columbus, Ohio, which is already a unique thing. Since I was in Columbus, Ohio, with the Michigan. Um, Lee Hess. But I, I, uh, 
this is this is great. Thanks to uh, I think Stephen dropped. Yeah. Um, but uh, we we went from inflation to uh, trying to help you know make government work to uh, I just want to you know what I can control is having Jim help MJ um, and uh, and bringing light and and if anybody has any last questions let me know but otherwise we'll be getting together tomorrow. 10 o'clock for the strategic advisor bits and it's soft launch. We haven't got it all figured out, but I'm just determined to figure it out. Um, you know, and, and the idea is, is, you know, bring people, you know, people like Jim who have some skills or all of us, you know, to, to connect with the people that need it. Um, yeah, it then, doesn't have to be perfect, Mark. You know, again, the starting point's a good place. And, you know, this is a, you've built a good community here. So I think everybody will be patient for, the progress. That'll, that'll be that'll be important because that, there'll be need for that. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna figure it out together. Thank you so right. much. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. You too, MJ. Thanks, Mark. Jim, it was a pleasure. Yeah, do connect. Evan, nice to meet you here.